Trump supporters may be gleeful in their cruelty, but is it part of being human? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. It's just business, guided only by cold market forces. Cruelty is just part of the picture. Regrettable, perhaps, but what are you going to do? It's a dog-eat-dog world out there, every person for him or herself. And in paying fealty to the notion of rugged individualism, cruelty just comes with the territory. In the world of reality, we can't really be expected to be naively Pollyanna-ish. It's just business. Instead of addressing cruelty, powerful governments and corporations prefer that any cruelty as a result of their policies just not be seen. Out of sight, out of mind. Cruelty has long been a feature of states, domestic and foreign policies, uh, but is seldom acknowledged. Sure, it's profitable, but what's the price? Is it not just unpleasant, but perhaps cruelty in the 21st century is no longer necessary for sustainability? Could it possibly be realistic to not only identify but aim to uh, now target cruelty with the goal of eliminating it as policy. In his new book, Cruelty or Humanity? Challenges, Opportunities, and Responsibilities, Stuart Rees exposes politicians' fascination with cruelty in their deliberations about policies. One reviewer called it essential reading in a present tumult and bedlam of human cruelty. Through empirical analysis, human stories, and a strong dose of poetic commentary, Reese identifies options for a new, non-destructive exercise of power, courageous political action, and compelling yet genuinely realistic humanitarian alternatives as the key to achieving a future in which dignity and equality flourish. Professor Stuart Rees is an Australian academic human rights activist and author who's the founder of the Sydney Peace Foundation and is Emeritus Professor at the Centre for Peace and Conflict Studies at the University of Sydney in Australia. And we are reaching him somewhere on that very large island in Australia. Stuart Rees, thanks so much for being with us uh, on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you very much, Bert. Uh, Good afternoon and uh, good morning. (laughs) It's true. It's 16 hours difference. So what is cruelty and how and why does it relate to so many of our current existential problems? What is the part that powerful politicians and corporations play in reinforcing the pervasiveness in cruelty in this country with so much wealth beyond imagination in the hands of so few and so many desperate Americans in food lines, jobless, late on mortgages and rents, late on utilities, dropped from health insurance, defaulted on student loans, dying horribly alone from COVID. This is invisible cruelty, and it doesn't have to be that way. Cruelty may emerge from naked, unfettered capitalism. The cold rules of the market are not 
the only way to do humanity, a system that enables billionaires to amass record amounts of wealth during a national crisis that's leaving millions hungry and houseless, invisible and unnecessary cruelty. I know that's a long introduction, but perhaps the fact, Professor Reese, that Outgoing President Donald Trump is openly gleeful in his enjoyment of dishing out cruelty. Maybe that can actually be a good thing. His, his for example, most obvious example is mocking the disabled, his blatantly sadistic treatment of refugee children, separating them from families, warehousing toddlers in cages, rushing to execute federal prisoners. Do you think his display of cruelty as policy and shocking so many around the world, exposing it, actually may have kicked off a new realization of what's been going on invisibly for a long time. What do you think? Look, that's an apt uh, introduction, but it's an essential question. I mean, cruelty is the wanton imposition of pain and suffering without justification. You can have a look at just about every piece of international law that was passed in 1948 in the Universal Declaration in the Geneva Convention in the Convention Against Torture and Cruel Punishment, but we seem to have forgotten, completely overlooked, become totally indifferent to the ideals of the never-again people who crafted those uh, international law documents. And so um, policy seems to be pragmatic, do what you can get away with, and you correctly say that... uh, Trump almost gets a sort of sadistic pleasure from dishing out cruelty. And now uh, he has 75 or whatever it is, million supporters who are apparently encouraged to think like him. It's going to take a long time to figure that one out and how to undo that. The example that he set by being so gleeful in, in meeting out cruelty, that, that's really uh, very, very concerning. Well, in a way, all your podcasts that I've listened to are about encouraging people to think differently about the way in which power is exercised, to think differently about internationally uh, internationalism rather than my country right or wrong. Mm. So the, the essential issue for me is how to think differently about, the, about uh, people, animals and planet but in particular, how to think differently about the exercise of power by every politician, every corporate leader, every NGO. Uh, and that's, that's the thesis in the second part of my book, the humanitarian alternatives part. And how did you come up with the title, Cruelty or Humanity? Challenges, Opportunities, Responsibilities. That's a good question. Well, the first part of uh, the cruelty, I mean, I, I, I've been looking at public uh, policies around the world for, for decades, and um, cruelty crops up as a feature of um, policies in democracies, in dictatorships, in theocracies. But mm. when you look at the index in public and economic policy books, the, world, the word cruelty hardly ever appears. In other words, it's it's not acknowledged. People claim that there in Australia we say we are good mates or we're Christians mm. and uh, the leaders of every other religion and government make similar claims, but they deceive themselves and try to deceive the rest of us. So I was trying to unmask the, um, the fact that uh, cruelty is an essential priority in policies, but never acknowledged 
to be such. I'll give you just one one particular incident that provoked me to start on this journey. It was when Raif Badawi, the very brave blogger in Saudi Arabia, was asking for more, uh, slightly more evidence of um, human rights and democracy in that country and was sentenced to a thousand lashes and Mm. 10 years in prison. Um, At the same breath, America was claiming that the Saudis were one of their best allies. (laughs) So this appalling sadism to Raif Badawi, the blogger, was accompanied by uh, an alliance and uh, the arrival of um, Trump to um, uh, to sell more arms. Mm. And and you talk a bit about collusion. As you write, alliances are made with countries which commit cruelties, but their allies behave as though uh, it has nothing to do with them. And of course, one thinks of the U.S. and the Saudis and there's their behavior domestically as well as in Yemen. Now, you know, we there are some people who say, well, they have so much oil, they're so important, so powerful, we just can't deal with that cruelty aspect of it. We have to look beyond that. What about this collusion and what that says about America's responsibility? Yeah, now that's crucial because collusion usually enables self-respecting democracies like America or Australia or Britain to, to say that they, um, you know, that they are almost as pure as the driven snow, but because collusion allows them to pretend that other people do the dirty work. Right. Mm. Uh, you even get Tony Blair, the former prime minister of, um, of Britain in the Iraq war, um, making those collusion claims that, um, that the problem was all with um, Saddam Hussein and the weapons of mass destruction, and uh, he produced... Um, dossiers which were entirely false to um, to insist uh, that there was a justification for the invasion of Iraq. And um, I suppose the most long-term example of collusion, of collusion that I, that I uh, have addressed because I've been to the Gaza Strip and, uh-huh. and the refugee camps in the Middle East many times concerns the behavior of the, of the United States and Australia Uh, in their uncritical support for the brutal behavior of successive Israeli governments. Yes, and I've heard that called the world's largest open-air prison. And it just, you know, it amazes me how, frankly, patient the Palestinians have been. You know, they they, uh, react. I mean, go ahead. Yeah, thank you for reminding me of that, because I've been in, in the Gaza Strip several times, um, here, as you say, it's, the, it's an open-air prison. There are two million people there. Um, uh, half of them are children. Mm. Most of the um, uh, sewage plants, most of the, uh, or several of the hospitals have been bombed flat. Um, the, cruel, the cruelty is, uh, is appalling. And um, there's no sign that the siege has, has ended. Yeah. Everybody's now meant to be excited about the arrival of a COVID vaccine and, and impending Christmas, but we remain indifferent to the, um, to the siege of Gaza and the collusion of major states with that um, siege. And it reminds me, people, I mean, there's a lot of people, especially in the uh, United States, who are incarcerated, there is this mass incarceration, huge problem that 
we, we don't like to look at. And there are people who say, well, it's their fault. If they hadn't have been bad people, they wouldn't be there. Uh, but, but, and <laughs> it, it, it amazes me how, you know, it's, it's said to be uh, correctional facilities. It does. It just punishes people. It's just cruelty all the time. And you know, there's years of unrelenting punishment. But we keep that invisible. And in 2020, it just what in 2020, there's the deadly impact of COVID-19 on people incarcerated uh, in jails, prisons, and detention centers. Uh, they do isolate people who have done bad things so they can do no further harm at the moment. But it, it seems that it goes against basic Judeo-Christian understanding that all humans are redeemable. Are there non-cruelty-based alternatives that might work better than this cruel warehousing of humans? Well, sure. Look, I, in a way, I wish I could nip over to the East Coast and sit, up, sit down over dinner with you um, at length to discuss this absurd preoccupation with imprisoning people. I mean, one of the biggest and apparently uh, successful industries in the United States is, is the prison system. You know, I've been in and out of the American prison system as a, as a criminologist. I spent a fair bit of time in and out of the Cannon City prison in Colorado. Um, it, it's, it's absurd. That it's absurd. It's cruel. It's completely contrary to basic human rights. But America is preoccupied with throwing people into jail. Yes. Um, I think, what have you got, about four million people at any one time? In prison, almost more per capita, as far as we know, than any other country in the world. I believe so. And yet, the 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 cultural deception that, that you really just mentioned doesn't allow the American citizens to reflect on that massive investment in cruelty. Yeah, and there's actually uh, uh, an organization with regard to Palestinians called If Americans Knew, and that people don't know. We don't want to know. We close our eyes. We don't want to see it. It's so inconvenient to look at it. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive, and we're speaking with Stuart Reese somewhere in Australia. He knows where. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> and his, his new book, about his new book, Cruelty or Humanity? Challenges, Opportunities, and Responsibilities. And I, I one of the very interesting things about your, your book is there's a lot of prose observations and analyses, but it's really unique in its interjection of a great deal of poetry, a lot of poetry in there. Why is that? What is their role in your book and in having a unique ability to diagnose the problem? What about all this poetry? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I wanted to uh, look at the exercise of power by anybody that is non-destructive, non-violent, and life-enhancing. The very opposite of prisons or Trumpism or the cruelty that goes with your, Australia's, uh, Europe's, UK's economic policies. And uh, the reference to uh, poetry and music and other art forms is, is crucial because they are all uh, expressions of power which uh, enhance our lives, harm nobody, and um, uh, are enormously rewarding. I mean, the wonderful English poet Percy by Shelley, um, famous for 
essentially for uh, non-violence, said that poets were the unacknowledged legislators of the world. Mm. By that he meant that they had a kind of vision about how we might live together in a productive and rewarding way. That hence my uh, choice of, um, of poetry. I mean, the, there's, I'll just give you one quick sure. example. The, yes. the, um, the uh, English romantic poet William Wordsworth, who is usually remembered for writing about daffodils and skylarks, actually observed the cruelty involved in the uh, Industrial Revolution. The, um, the forcing of peoples into factories for low wages in, in, in appalling conditions. And he said, what a fair world were ours for verse to paint if power could live at ease with self-restraint, which was another way of expressing the same ideas yeah. that, for example, uh, Beethoven expressed in the, in the Ninth Symphony, the so-called Peace Symphony. Um, and we could we could spend um, thirty seconds talking about that as well. Well, it, some people might say, "Oh, poetry, art. Oh, that's not that's just not realistic. That's uh, superfluous to the real business of humanity, which is making things, selling them. You know, increasing our landfills drastically all the time." Uh, what do you say to people who might say that? Oh, poetry, you know, it's, you know, to talk about that is Pollyannish. We have to have real, you know, we got to be tough. We got to be strong. What, what's your reaction to that? Well, I think we, we all have to learn that um, uh, economy is not the, is not the major, a major, the, the only purpose in life. We have to right. learn to right. uh, realize that the crafting of a fair and just society, which includes not being cruel to planet Earth, yeah. Um, is, uh, is, is, uh, is a priority. I mean, nobody on their deathbed says, um, I only, only wish I'd made more money. Right. But you might say, I wish I'd, um, I wish I'd uh, knew a little bit more about Shakespeare <laughs> or about some of your, or, or about the wonderful eccentric um, American poet um, Marion Moore, um, who, asked, who, said, who said to the American people, Today, even though she died in the late 30s, I think, um, blessed is the man who asks himself the question, would this solve the problem? Mm. Is it right as I see it? And is it in the best interests of all? Because what is the problem of COVID-19 in the United States is this absurd concern with so-called individual freedom, yeah. complete blindness and deafness to the wisdom of investment in collective interests, public interests. Um, if I, I hope I'm not going off at a oh, tangent at this point. Oh, not at all. And I, I, I don't know who I stole this from, but saying, oh, it's my freedom, I'm not going to wear a mask, is like somebody during the Blitz of London by the Nazis in World War II. It's my freedom. I'm going to leave the lights on. <laughs> it just sure. Well, I mean, you know, any, I mean, here am I living in the prison on the beautiful east coast of of Australia, where we've been COVID free yes. for about almost six months. Oh my God! And what, the, the question is why? Yes. This is about the altern the the humanitarian alternative to to cruelties. The 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 explanation largely is because of public investment in 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 hospitals in. Uh, 
public services. It's, it's about the public. It's about the collective interest. And thereby, the realization of almost all citizens that their freedom concerns and respect for other people. It's not about their individual freedom right. to buy a gun and shoot whomever they like <laughs> in order to solve problems. You know, rugged individualism never was true. It's always been a myth, but but myths often have a lot more power than uh, than reality. And I think about you know poetry. I'm sort of a World War One uh, uh, buff. I uh, and the poetry around World War One. I, I mean, that thing was just insane. There was no reason for that war, but the poetry just you know, it captures the madness of it perfectly. Yeah. yeah, no, that's, you know, I'm glad you're a World War One buff, uh, but yeah. um, we just to remember the poetry of Wilfred Owen. I oh, think yes. he, he, I think he died when he was 23, um, and a lot of them did. They, they, they didn't get as far as their middle 20s. Yeah. So the interest, so that in the interests of, of violence and cruelty, and an, an absurd commitment to militarism mm -hmm. we, we slaughtered what something like 12 million young young people mostly mostly men in that war yeah yeah and it was all for not all for not and nationalism and that's actually let's let's get into nationalism a bit i have a particular beef with the concept of nationalism donald trump calls himself a nationalist world war one was all about nationalism and aside from the famous uh, uh, Christmas uh, truce in uh, Christmas 1914, there were other, many other times where one side or the other was taken prisoner. And the guys became friends. They became buddies. They realized, what the heck, you know, internationalism. And, you know, it's time. It's time, I think, that, that we put nationalism aside. What, how much of the essence of nationalism do you think uh, it lends itself to cruelty and helps create uh, cruelty? Yeah, another great question. Look, nationalism is about what I call one-dimensional power. Mm. It's from the top down. You just All I need from you is your obedience and compliance. And the whole of the country's education systems used to be and still are based on uh, compliance. You, you just obey the teacher and do what you're told, and uh, yeah. and dictatorships love that because it's so you don't have to think very much. Uh, right. Uh, and um, you can see that even with, um, uh, the, I mean, the current nationalism of uh, Boris Johnson yes. in in the United Kingdom. I mean, he's not a conservative. He's a he's a rabid right. nationalist. All right. this nonsense about. Uh, about Brexit and Britain going it alone when the world, when the planet faces disaster within the next 12 years, when the world demands uh, multilateralism, internationalism, yes. when COVID-19 should surely have spelled out the simple lesson about interdependence of everyone in order to survive. Uh, and yet we get these uh, chest-beating nationalists <laughs> Partly, partly a derivative of of economic policies, and uh, they are a menace. But also, they're, if you like, intellectually not very interesting because it's um, uh, the Trumps of this world can easily shout those nationalist uh, slogans. Yes, 
and and people kind of love it. They go along with it. It's uh, it, it happens. And uh, Trump, I you know, I I I thought he'd be done uh, a long, long time ago. I didn't think he'd be the nominee. You know that the, there's that famous video of him mocking a reporter who has a disability. Children in their families at the southern border have darker skin. The U.S. is superior in military and economic power to what Trump called, and I guess I can say it now, shithole nations. Is the ability to exercise cruelty contingent on one entity, the perpetrator, having power and the victim being assumed to be less than, having no power? I mean, cruelty can't, does it happen between perceived equals or is it necessary for the the perpetrator to to have power and the victim to have no power. Sure. Look, I'll make two points about that. The first is that in all my um, uh, inquiries into cruelty in just about every state I could come across, I could not find any example of cruelties being dished out to people who'd been identified as equal. In other words, you had to uh, stigmatize uh, all sorts of people, whether they were disabled or non-believers or indigenous or Jews or Romanies, you had to stigmatize, stigmatize uh, people, in particular in, our, in the case of Australia, asylum seekers, yes. uh, as, as inferior and in some cases as allegedly not existing. So, for example, the Rohingya in Myanmar, right. it's, it's a criminal offense to mention the word Rohingya because... Mm they allegedly do not exist. And for years, uh, the Palestinians were regarded as not existing. So that's the first, that's the first uh, point I would make, that nobody is on the receiving end of, of massive cruelties if they're considered equal. The second point, and I'll just try and be brief about this, concerns the courage in public life to stand up to the, to the bullies and, and, and the cruel people. And we can maybe spend a little bit of time on that, on the courage issue. I definitely want to do that because, uh, you know, it, it amazes me how nowadays, I think in reaction to uh, the protests against America's war in Vietnam, when people confused, regrettably, the policy with the men and women who were there carrying out the policy. So now, I think as an overreaction, all things military, anybody wearing a uniform is said to be a hero. But yet, in again, in the First World War in England and in America, and I imagine in other countries too, there were people who stood up and protested. They're not recorded very much in history, but they had tremendous courage. It's like, what is the definition of courage? Does it have to be, you know, militaristic courage? What, what about this role of courage? No, on, on the contrary, the, I mean, the evidence, if you look at um, Renaissance, medieval, uh, Greek cultures, courage was about qualities that kept the household and the community together. Uh, curiosity, humor, loyalty, friendship, and an amalgam of those qualities amounted to courage. So it's not just a, uh -huh. it's not just a particular character trait, although... I mean, my experience of courage in dangerous places is that you have to you have to practice it. But look at the monumental cowardice of the Republican Party in America at the moment. They seem to be scared stiff of 
Trump and his armed followers with their disgraceful behavior in the in taking yeah. that case to the Supreme Court uh, is an example of appalling cowardice and a complete absence of uh, of courage in public life. And um, I mean, I don't want to sound too libelous, but uh, what's his name? Mitch McConnell yeah. seems to be the epitome of somebody unable to to um, to show any sign of courage. Yes, that's true. And I, you talk about collusion and enabling. Oh, my goodness. I, I think there's one could say that uh, Mitch McConnell, in many ways, while not doing it as directly and openly and overtly as Trump, he's he's an enabler of cruelty. I, I And it, it just, ugh, I and it doesn't have to be that way. It just doesn't have to be that way. And I'll tell you, I'm, I, grew, I grew up in the, in the 50s and late 60s, went to Woodstock, protested. And, you know, I picture the 21st century as a time when we would realize, hey, you know what? There is enough to go around. And it, my sense is that cruelty and nationalism and, and war derives from uh, a lack of food. Uh, that having food insecurity and this whole insecurity thing, there's enough to go around. Uh, and I, I don't know what your thoughts might be around that. And and you know the the look, whole look look. I've watched I've watched films of um, of Americans queuing up for food. You yes. know, kilometers long, uh. expensive cars in a traffic jam waiting to receive a frozen turkey. Yes. And when they get to the end. Uh, people express their gratitude, and then when interviewed, some of them have said, this proves that America is the greatest country in the world. And they completely <sighs> miss the point that um, unless, you know, why, why are they, why is this rich country, um, why, why are 50 million Americans short of food? One yes. in four, possibly as many as one in three American children going hungry. Well, the answer is that you don't believe in collective interests. You don't believe in you're not allowed to talk about collective well-being. I mean, when when I was in America a few years ago to talk about the value of universal health insurance as the foundation yeah, really. of a civil society, yes. there were people parading in the streets with Kalashnikov saying that this was socialism. <laughs> And as Gore Vidal and others have said, we've had socialism for the very richest for a long time and bare knuckle uh, free market for everybody else. <laughs> and, uh, sure. Well, look, look, I used, to, I used to teach at the university, the wonderful University of California at, at Berkeley. I mean, yeah. in the 60s, we called it the Socialist Republic of America. Yeah. But I used to say to students, <laughs> look, you, you have got the best socialist welfare system in the world better than anything the Soviet Union produced. And they would, they, these are very bright young people. <laughs> right. And I said, well, it's, it's called the American military. Yes. You have massive um, subsidies for life, for transport, health, education, etc. That's that and, and, and the fellowship that goes with it. Yes. That's socialism. But, yes. but you are not allowed to talk about it. <laughs> and there's, you know, it, it, it's amazing how, you know, you, you, I've heard it said that you say the word socialism and people stop thinking. 
But, you know, there's, we're talking about cruelty here, in case, uh, for those who just tuned in, our guest today is Stuart Reese in Australia, who is an Australian academic, human rights activist, uh, professor emeritus, uh, and his new book is called Cruelty or Humanity, Challenges, Opportunities, and Responsibility. And, you know, when it's done by individuals, cruelty is recognized as, as sick, in need of treatment. It's a psychological illness. But when it's practiced by an institution, it's intentionally made invisible. Uh, I don't know exactly how cruelty but on the part of individuals is dealt with in the psychiatric field. But, uh, you know, and it's, it reminds me that when a person kills another, it's a crime of murder. But when a state does it on a massive scale... Obviously, it's called war, and it's okay. Talk about that, please. Well, I, I, I try to avoid the some kind of psychological sure. explanation for cruelty, because the overwhelming evidence, whether I look to South America, North America, Europe, Southeast Asia, China, Russia, and so on, was that there was a, a culture in, in all those countries under all those sorts of government that, that basically gave a nod and a wink to cruel practices. And in a way, the wonderful uh, uh, Jewish-American philosopher Hannah Arendt yes. gave us the explanation with regard to uh, the arch-murderer at the time of the Holocaust, Adolf Eichmann. Right. And people were rushing to say, well, he's just one of few bad apples. You know, you mm -hmm. hear that mm -hmm. explanation. It's just a few bad apples. Right. And basically, Hannah Arendt says, no, no, no. This he was um, uh, he was um, unexceptional in many ways. He reflected a culture that said this this sort of cruelty was permissible. After all, you needed to to um, engineer the Holocaust. You needed a massive bureaucratic um, massive bureaucratic machinery. And um, you know, even in, in in my country here, we have something called. Home, home Affairs Department, which, which is massively cruel towards asylum seekers and refugees. Mm. So, and it's, in other words, it's part of a, of a culture that says, look, it, it's, it's in our best uh, national interests to do this. Yeah. And um, it's usually concealed, it's usually denied, and the denial and the concealment is usually a catalyst for cruelties. Yeah. Interesting, yeah. I mean, in other words, I, I hadn't realized that the enormous investment in public relations to deny cruelties is the, is the means of facilitating it. So, for example, you get the Myanmar military, right. evidence from New York Times, from an impressive New York Times journalist, throwing small children, small Rohingya children into a bonfire. Yes. And within 48 hours later, the, the um, Myanmar spokesperson at the United Nations is at a podium in New York saying we are totally committed to human rights. So you get this, this denial going, the, the denial, the lying. It's a bit like uh, the, you know, doing fact checks on um, Donald Trump <laughs> facilitates the cruelty. Yes. If you pretend, you pretend that you're not sadistic. Mm. Um, that seems to be a way of ensuring that you are. Interesting point. And one of the, 
has got from your book, uh, one of the most powerful axioms designed to keep us infantile and silent is politics and religion are not polite subjects at a dinner party. And to that, you cite Polish poet, and I may mispronounce this, Wisława Zimborska, who writes, We are children of our age. It's a political age. Whatever you say reverberates, and whatever you don't say speaks for itself. So either way, you're talking politics. Please say more about that, please. Well, look, you know, all sorts of people say to me, look, I'm not really interested in politics. I have nothing to do with politics. <laughs> right. And along the Symborska lines, I, I usually say to them, well, were you brought up in a family? <laughs> yes, of course. I said, well, were, did, was there ever any conflict in the family? Hmm. Was it about power? Was there, a, was there somebody who was uh, scapegoated in the family in order to demonstrate the rest of you were normal? They usually say, well, yes, of course. Well, you know, that's where, that's where the politics is only about uh, uh, playing with power to gain advantage for one person yes. or group over another. Yes. And then it gets transferred to something called uh, the body politic. But essentially, it's in... It's in the context of the home, it's on the streets, it's in communities, um, and, in, and in party politics. Absolutely. It's everywhere. You can't not be political. You just you don't know it, but just by being quiet about it, you're doing it. And this is a way to, to, to keep us well, silent. You were about to say... Sure, well, take the way that Fox, that Fox News and the Murdoch media around the world... Yes. Um, con people, deceive them, and, and um, encourage violence, deception, and, and cruelty. So they're up to, their, up to their armpits, one might say up to their eyeballs yes. in, in fermenting uh, politic, the politics of cruelty. And it just goes on and on. And one of the more obvious and massive examples of cruelty in the 20th century has been terror bombing, going beyond one military fighting another nation's military to indiscriminate bombing of residential areas, as in both world wars. There's Dresden, Hiroshima, Kissinger's carpet bombing of large swaths of Cambodia, etc. What about the employment of terror as a political tool routinely practiced in the 20th century. I mean, one could argue that it's a legitimate military target, which is effective at destroying the enemy's morale. What about that argument? Well, of course, the, the wonderful Noam Chomsky says, if you want to stop war and stop terrorism, um, you must cease being involved in it yourselves. <laughs> and um, so, in other words... Violence begets violence. We yes. can think the only way to el to eliminate is, as you say, to carpet bomb, um, and even you know the the respected Obama was um, oh, I know. Uh, apparently fascinated with um, the use of drones yes. and, and further bombing that led to numerous, infinite numbers of um, civilian casualties in Afghanistan. I mean, yes. we can we ah. can we can stand aghast at um, at ISIS and the, and the Taliban, but the the, the democratic governments mm -hmm. uh, have been no dif no different essentially than dictatorships and theocracies in in, um, in the use of violence to get their way. Well, they do it with more expensive toys. 
you know, <laughs> they have a lot well, of... Yeah. Well, that takes us to nuclear, to nuclear disarmament as, as one of the sure. uh, potentially... Well, it's not potentially, it was one of the most appalling cruelties that we have ever witnessed on the face of the earth. Yes. If you listen to the, to the Japanese survivors of the bombing oh. of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, you would, you would uh, try to ensure that the uh, nuclear prohibition treaty was signed by all the nations, including the ones such as, um, uh, such as America and Russia and, uh, and Israel who, who possess nuclear weapons. You, you would have a, I mean, if we want the planet to survive, we not, not only have to have different policies regarding, the, um, regarding global warming, but we urgently need nuclear disarmament. Yes. <laughs> Um, and yet, it, and, um, it hasn't been done. And you talk about climate change and global warming. There's an element of what we're talking about in how that has continued, and the treatment of animals, for example, and the the treatment of the planet Earth. You know, is, is some degree of what's your thought about how cruelty might relate to the problem of global warming? In a way, what I'm arguing, and what we what we're both arguing is that the discussion of cruelty has got to become uh, almost a, a, a priority overnight. And the discussion of the humanitarian alternatives to cruelty has uh, got to be a policy priority uh, uh, overnight. Right. You can see the, the, the destruction of, of, of planet Earth in the, um, in the fires burning across California earlier this year in, yes. in, my, in Australia, oh, across... Terrible. Yeah. Across uh, Siberia, um, so and and then of course we lost thousands, if possibly millions, of of animals yes. who had whose homes were burned and had nowhere to flee. Yeah, no. So um, the um, the rebellion against the use of fossil fuels is and, and to protect all we have. I remember the the early astronauts saying that um, looking back on on the planet Earth and saying that it was a fragile life support system. Mm -hmm. And we've been, by our so-called economic progress, we've been desperately trying to, to stifle the um, life support systems <laughs> of planet Earth. Uh, you're so right. And I find it fascinating that, you know, throughout a lot of Western history, uh, there's this basis of domination and control. For example, the white settlers in what's now the United States, they just wiped out the original inhabitants, considered them less than. They kidnapped and enslaved millions of people from Africa. Uh, the Australian treatment of the original natives there. It's convenient, it's most convenient to pretend this never existed, to not talk about it. Canada, I believe, has made an apology to the uh, original inhabitants. I, I, but I sense intense resistance to just acknowledging this cruelty. I wonder about the power of acknowledging the cruelty uh, as perhaps yeah. a remedy that's available but not taken. Well, the, to, to its credit, I think we need to do it more and far more, and I'm not the last thing I'm going to do, going to do um, is, to, um, is to be... Um, nationalistically proud of Australia with all its appalling shortcomings, the biggest one of which it almost is its 
uncritical deference to policies coming out of Washington. Yeah. But um, we, we did apologize. The Prime Minister Rudd did apologize uh-huh. to these stolen generations. Uh-huh. The, the Australian High Court, I think in 1992, did declare that um, uh, Australia was not an empty land when the British uh-huh. arrived, uh-huh. that we did... Um, there was a genocide committed against the indigenous people. And every public, just about every public meeting in this country, small or large public meeting, begins with the acknowledgement to the indigenous people and the acknowledgement that this is Aboriginal land. Now, that doesn't mean to say that we've, uh, we've, uh, we are consistently uh, humanitarian and creative in our policies towards indigenous people, but at least there is a realisation by everyone that this is Aboriginal land and that uh, slaughter of Indigenous people priests was part of, is part of Australian history. But that admission has never been made, as you know, in the United States. No, and treating people as less than, when I find it fascinating that with the massive fires in Australia uh, of last year, I believe it was, a lot of the uh, native people had knowledge and had wisdom of how to control fires. So these people that were treated as less than, you know, in so many cases with the with the so-called Indians here in America, the wisdom that's there about how to treat Mother Earth, but the fact that we treated them as less than and subject, you know, just the the cruelty that was unleashed. It's rather counterproductive, aside from being not nice. And for those who may have yeah, just... Yeah, great example. Go ahead. Yeah, look, great, I mean, great example. Certainly, we've been obliged to listen to indigenous people yes. um, about, um, uh, if you like, harvesting fire, yes. knowing how to use, use fire productively uh, on this very uh, dry... Um, dry continent. Yes. I mean, I spent years on the Reconciliation Commission in this country, ah, traveling yeah. the country, mm. and, and, and what I learned from indigenous people was that you could not separate their personal health from the health of the land. They, ah. they refused to, they couldn't make a distinction between their respect for the land, the environment, and their own bodily health. In other words, the human rights of, the, of planet Earth could not be separated from the human rights of all the individuals upon it. I mean, a great piece of indigenous wisdom. I'd say. And the fact that, you know, these nationalisms, which insist on superiority and dominance and control, we can learn a lot, a lot from the people that have been kept down and how... uh, so counterproductive. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Live. We're talking about cruelty, a new book called Cruelty or Humanity, Challenges, Opportunities, and Responsibility with our guest, Stuart Reese, who's the author of that book. In, in general, capitalism, which is untethered to moral standards, has long relied on institutional cruelty. Slavery, child labor, inhuman working conditions, Humans subservient to the efficiency of production. Many years ago, Congressman Dick Gephardt was running for president, and he talked about something I thought it was an interesting phrase, capitalism with a conscience. 
Franklin Roosevelt, one of my heroes, well, he made some mistakes, but uh, he insisted that capitalism must be subservient to the common good. Some on the doctrinaire left insist capitalism per se is evil and cruel and is not fixable, but must simply be done away with. Can there be capitalism with a conscience, do you think, as, as Gephardt suggested? Well, in a, in a way, look, we have to look at the consequences of capitalism, which, um, and you're seeing it quite right across the United States at the moment, the homelessness, the hunger, the... Uh, the imprisonment, yeah. the, the suicide rates, the homicide rates, they are, if you like, all the consequences of them. Uh, let's compete as much as possible and get ahead um, mm -hmm. to avoid falling, falling behind. Um, in the second part of the humanitarian alternatives that I want people to be enthusiastic about, and you have to have the language, you have to have a language of humanity to be able to talk about, if you like, an alternative to capitalism. It's, in some ways, it's called humane governance, which I used to say was about not peace. I'm, I'm slightly interested in peace, but I'm 1,000 times more interested in peace with justice. Absolutely. Or it's about the ideals of a common humanity that led people to craft the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which in 1948 was meant to represent the highest expectations of uh, the common man. So um, those are all, if you like, you could call it capitalism with a conscience. Um, I'm a bit, when, when people say uh, on the left, do away with it, I'm, yeah. I, um, it's, it's almost as though they've, they've, they've discovered an aspirin um, <laughs> to take for, for, a, for an economic headache, and I'm a bit cautious about that. Uh, <laughs> well, as H.L. Mencken said, for every complex problem, there's a simple solution, and it's wrong. <laughs> medical care. Yes. You know, medical yes. care. Is there any reason other than callous cruelty why it is not available as a right for all? Is, is opposition to Medicare for all a kind of subtle institutional cruelty? Yes, I mean, I, on, on the face of we're we're only on the on the planet for five minutes. Uh, uh, but if you're a, if you're an indigenous person anywhere in the world, you're on you're only there for four minutes, metaphorically speaking. Mm -hmm. And I've always argued that nobody should be financially penalized for being sick. In other words, um, other people shouldn't be able to make a profit out of um, somebody being sick. That seems to be, to be an inherent form of cruelty. It runs contrary to the Hippocratic Oath. It, um, it's where... It's where it, it, a version of capitalism somehow sees people's sickness as a source of profit and advantage. It's, uh, I mean, the best thing that ever sure. happened in post-war Britain was the creation of the National Health Service. Sure. The best thing that happened um, 40 years ago in Australia was the, was the creation of universal health insurance. In other words, <laughs> you don't you can get the best possible treatment in public hospitals on the basis of being sick, not on the, which has nothing to do with your, your bank account. Right. Yeah. It's, it's amazing to me how the greed that's involved there. It just, it, it's incredible. Now being in New Hampshire, we got to see all the presidential candidates up close and personal. Andrew Yang brilliantly proposed a realistic solution 
to the cruelty of unnecessary poverty. The the policy that's embraced now of rewarding the hyper-wealthy while sim- simultaneously and cruelly, cruelly making sure that the poor stay poor and feel bad about themselves. There's some unspoken but agreed to need to be tough on those who have fallen in hard times. Again, it doesn't have to be this way. It's one, if one is economically indentured, there is no freedom. Is it realistically possible that an economy can be made to exist not based on inequalities and injustices? Back to the economy question. Look, I would tomorrow introduce uh, a universal basic income for every citizen, however yes, rich, yes. however poor. Yes. And if you, if you looked at the aggregate in this country of what we call social security, the equivalent of your social security, if you added up what you spend on that, let alone what you spend on military social security, yeah. you, would have the, you would have the foundations of a, um, uh, or actuarially, a universal basic income. Now, of course, the, uh, there would be all sorts of screens that, that would stop people from working hard, the usual, oh, usual thing about the, the so-called Protestant ethic. Yeah. Um, but that would, that would, that would deal, almost deal with the stigmatization of the poor mm-hmm. at, at a stroke. It would, it would deal with poverty at a stroke. Um, it would deal with the complexities of social security arrangements whereby you have to meet all sorts of absurd criteria. Um, but to get there, we have to talk about it. That's why, that's why I, the last chapter in the book is about a language for humanity. Because unless we, unless we have a language to talk about this future, the kind of Andrew Yang um, uh, ideals that you mentioned, uh, then we can't even have a conversation about a socially uh, just uh, future. Indeed. you got to have the language. And in just the last couple minutes, democracy in America was recently pulled back from the edge after being at the precipice of authoritarianism. We got Trump out. <laughs> well, technically we did. You write that seizing the opportunities to remove cruelty depends on enthusiasm for a revived democratic politics. Perhaps we are there at this unique moment in history. What do you think? Is this a good time to start talking about that language and becoming reviving? Revi- oh, Demo- Go ahead. Sure. It's going to be the, the, the kind of language that, that, um, of keeping democracy alive. It's the language of Beethoven's Peace Symphony. It's the language of great poets, of great artists, all the things of, the, of great, uh, and I frequently argue, great hospitality. The, the opposite is people parading in the, in the streets with their guns um, uh, in order to um, stifle any opposition and, to, and threaten with, with, um, with uh, violence, even with murder, yes. the people who, who dared to criticize Trump. Yes. So they, they, they need, and yet, you know, America does express all those, all, all those other qualities, but they have got to come to the fore. And I, it seems to me that at least the common decency of Joe Biden yes. is giving not just Americans, but is, I can tell you, is giving the rest of the world hope. I mean, the rest of the world has breathed a sigh of relief, oh, sure. even though, even though uh, the um, the Senate and the the yeah. Congress might still be controlled by Republicans. But look, we, the rest of the world is enormously grateful to have a, a decent human being yes. in in um, 
in the White House. I'm very pleased with that, I must say. I mean, he's got a lot of work to do, and he's not going to fix it by himself, but he's stopped the danger of slipping into authority, well, cruel authoritarianism. Yeah, I mean, sure, that's why I mean, we have to meet one another. We have to have multilateralism. We have to have dialogue. Yes. Apart from anything else, I always say to people who are you know, right-wing and angry, look, if you do those things, it actually makes your life more interesting. Yeah. You know, I frequently say to... Um, uh, people who insist that they've discovered the way, you know, that uh, suppressing women and children is the way that way uh, is the, the way to go, uh, particularly leaders of certain religions. Mm -hmm. And I used to say to them, "Would you like to make your life more interesting?" You know, I don't go in and damn their behaviour. Uh, I just say, "Would you like to make your life more interesting?" And if so, you know, how would you do it? Interesting. Well, we have to expand our language. No question about that. Fascinating. The book is Cruelty or Humanity. Stuart Reese, and it's put out by Policy Press. Thank you so much for being with us today and this wonderful optimism that this we can make some changes now. Thank you so much, Stuart Reese. Well, thank you for being able to make the telephone connection there. <laughs> Yeah, we'll see how much it costs later on. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you very much. Bye. Well, you know I can be found Sitting alone If you can come around At least please telephone But don't be cruel To a heart that's true Baby, if I made you mad With something I might have said Please forget my past The future looks bright ahead But don't be cruel that's true I don't want no other love Baby, it's just you I'm thinking of Don't stop thinking of me Don't make me feel this way Come on over and love me You know I want you to stay Don't be cruel To a heart that's true Let's walk down to the preacher Let's say, hey, I do And then I know you want me And you know I want you to Don't be cruel To a heart that's true I don't want no other love Baby, it's just you I'm thinking of Don't be cruel To a heart that's true Don't be cruel 
Thank you. 